From RTE Radio, I'm Neil O'Sheridan. This is Playback Daily. I'm super laid back. I use the word super instead of very now because I work as a barista in the East Village. And I also found out that I'm 65% Irish in my DNA. <laughs> what they have told me is they are very happy and uh, humble, I would say. Coming up on this edition of Playback Daily, weaponized incompetence. Ryan Toberty gives us the executive summary. Empty shelves in supermarkets. Chef Brian McDermott on homegrown alternatives to Spanish veg. And exciting news for ABBA fans around the world. That's all in the way over the next hour of the radio catch-up show. I would ask you to take a chance, take a chance, take a chance. The musings on the news, or newsings, if you will, on this morning's Ryan Tuberty show started with our host's views, well known to regular listeners, on the phenomenon of vocal fry. Have you heard people talking with vocal fry? It it started ages ago uh, with, I remember listening to American podcasts and the one I'm thinking in particular was Serial. And the person who was narrating it had this terrible habit of finishing a sentence on a fry. So she'd be talking about what happened in court today. And it goes, the voice just goes into this thing and it's, it's, it's almost this so very, I'm super laid back. I use the word super instead of very now because I work as a barista in the East Village. I've got so many tattoos, I can't even see myself anymore. So that's vocal fry. And it appears that the nautical world is getting in on the act. It's spread to the seas and the oceans because obviously the whales who are big podcast fans, I mean, they're the original podcasters, let's face it, (laughs) are so into this that they're now trying to emulate our vocal fried friends who are doing their podcasts with their lattes and their oat milk lattes. And it's like super annoying. And they're doing this. And the whales, a harbour porpoise, has, has now found a whole new porpoise in life. By becoming the ultimate, I'm sorry for that. I, I apologise for that, lad. That, that was cheap. That was, that was beneath me. I kind of enjoyed it, but it was cheap and nasty. All right, so let's do it. The whales are vocal frying. This is a little uh, clip, a little soundscape from the seascape of the fryscape of the whalescape. Oh. You've just been listening to whales communicating with vocal fry. It's, 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 hit, it's hit the seas. That's what's happening. The female version of it, for example, is the, from, the t- from the radio podcast Serial. And here is the, I think it's the presenter, Alex Spiegel, um, listing, somebody's cut it together anyway, a list of her words, just speaking randomly. But it's all about the fry. So she goes to buy bread. If I go to buy bread, I go to buy bread. If Alex goes to buy bread, she goes to buy bread. And if she goes to park her car, she goes to park her car. You get this. I, I don't want to overdo it, but here she is listing words. Dinner, things, friends, everywhere, too. For example, retail, all day long. Customer, carving knife, mirror, breakdown, the internet. There you are. That's Volcofer. I'll leave it there. You may not be able to un- unhear it ever again um, because once it's there... Once it's there, it never goes away, believe me. I don't mind telling you, this sort of thing kind of irks me. I mean, what if that's just the way these women talk? Ever think about that? Also, Alex Siegel, well, she's never presented cereal. Sarah Koenig presents cereal. Just, you know, saying. 
But enough of the fact-checking, as the Tubbs team obviously said far too soon. What about a riddle? When is a weakness actually an advantage? This is an expression, expression I've never heard before, but I'm loving it. Weaponized incompetence. Okay, so this is, let me read this article here for you. Uh, it's a pretty common phenomenon when, where people use the fact that they're not particularly good at something or simply don't like doing it to get out of shouldering their fair share of the responsibility. Already you're going, yep, yeah, I know one. I know, I live with one. I work with one. I see one over there. You know one. It's called weaponized incompetence. This has been given us to, by psychology today. It's what happens when one person gets their way by somehow falling into a pit of incompetence, saddling the other person with work left undone. I don't know how to work. I don't know how, how does that work? I God, I wish I knew. I wish I knew, I said one day to my computer, to which point poor Susan beside me said, you know that's called learned helplessness. I haven't let her forget it. Many years now, we've been, we've been, uh, I've been reminding her about that. Um, it's a concept that can often be seen in domestic situations where one person uses the fact that he or she is not good at something. Like, oh, I'm not good at ironing or I'm very bad at folding the kids' clothes or, oh, I don't mean to put the towels there. I should put them over in the right section. And then the other person goes, I'll just do it. That's the competent person. And the incompetent person has weaponized his or her incompetence by going, yeah, it's probably best you do it because you know how to do it properly. You're being gaslit with towels. That's what's happening here. And you don't even know it. And the other person sitting on the couch watching the news going, how's, how's that going? Is it, is it good? Yeah, it's going fine, but I, I'm only doing it because you're not great at doing it. I, I, this is a raw deal. Think about it. Weaponized incompetence. Bring that to your dinner table later on. Honestly, have a good row. You're welcome. Uh, let's go down the line here. From the new, from the new uh, employee who claims not to be able to use the coffee machine because he or she doesn't want to become the coffee boy or girl, smart move, to the senior manager who says they don't have a clue how the printer works. Oh, I'm a bit guilty of that now sometimes, I have to say. But no, I have to say, I don't say, I don't know how it works, help. I tend to stand at it helplessly. And then they hear noises of drawers and somebody then goes, who's going over to the Egypt? They discuss it, I can hear it. And I better look for one of us and they come over and they fix it. I, but I, I, I try. I don't think... Anyway, I'm, I'm defending myself too much now. I'm losing. Anyway, um, what else? Weaponizing incompetence is a little more insidious than playing to your strengths, though. It's actively using one's weaknesses to get out of the parts of the job you don't fancy or that aren't fulfilling you anymore. And it will be a sign that you're not exactly satisfied with the career path you find yourself on. Um, ergo, I don't know how that works. Yeah, I do. And you can find out. That's the truth of it. It's good. It's a good one. Weaponized incompetence. I love it. But wait, what condition are your shoes in? Ryan's, well, they're pretty darn shiny. Now, as you know, I'm a big fan of polished shoes. I polish them all the time with the brush and the old rag and the bit of kiwi. Love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. The, 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 the Mary Condonian joy that I sparks. When I see the, the, shoot, the final product, delighted with life, simple, simple, simple things. But in the Associated Press reporting on a, on a, a recent winter weekday at Penn Station, the, the, the train station in New York, the shoe repair and shoes shine. Men hop onto shoe shine chairs and pull out newspapers and phones to read while shoe shiners get to work applying polish and elbow grease to loafers and boots and other leather shoes. And when finished, these customers hand over about $8 in cash at a counter where a sign reads, wait for it, it's good. We're not God, but we do save souls. Bing. Two points for the shoe shiners. 
Today, the tradition of getting a quick polish from a rag-toting shoeshiner is greatly diminished, and many stands similar to the one in that train station have disappeared across the country. The decline has been exacerbated by the pandemic, remote working, and the rise in popularity of more casual workwear when people did return to the office. So they're wearing their runners around the place. We mentioned this, uh, po- the, the Polish brand. I nearly said Polish brand, but it's not a capital P. The Polish brand... Kiwi even said in January that it had stopped selling the brand in the UK because the demand wasn't there. But the guy running the Penn Station stand said, pre-pandemic, 80 to 100 pairs of shoes every day. Now it's 30 to 50, Tuesday to Thursday, fewer on Mondays and Fridays because of hybrid work. So it's a dying trade, no doubt about it. Tell me about the decline of Western civilization without telling me about the decline of Western civilization. Meanwhile, news of the death of Brian Donnelly, of Donnelly visa fame, led Ryan to tell us the story of when he met Joe Biden some time ago. When, when Joe Biden was over here many years ago, uh, he did a talk with the American Ireland Fund. I, was at, I had the pleasure of being at the dinner and I brought one of my sisters, Rachel, with me. And we had a lovely evening, uh, but we didn't get a photo or anything like that with, the, with as he was the vice president until... One of his minders said, hey, we saw you at Dublin Castle earlier on. I had done an introduction um, previously in that day, Um, uh, but you didn't get a picture. Step in here. And I stepped in to this kind of marquee type place that was all security. And uh, Joe Biden had just finished his speech. Myself and Rachel just stood there and they said, just hold it on a minute. And sure enough, the door opened to this tunnel. It was just us and a few security people. And in comes Joe Biden. And when Joe Biden steps into a room, you know all about it, let me tell you. It starts with the teeth, big white grin, smile, very pleasant. Um, I shook his hand. I'm sure I said something unintelligible. Uh, and I introduced my sister and he said, this is your sister? I said, yes. He said, great. Now we have one thing in common. I said, and what's that? He said, we both have sisters. We're better looking than us. We laughed. We smiled. We got a picture. But I never saw the picture again until yesterday when John and the embassy f- got in touch and said, we found it. I was so happy because it's a really lovely picture as it turns out. So I posted that up on Instagram, the crack of dawn this morning. You can have a look at it. It's a nice picture. Um, and uh, Rachel looks great in it. The president looks happy. And I'm there too, as it happens. But uh, it comes on foot of the news that the president looks like it's, he's going to make a trip to Ireland, hopefully next month, if the ducks are all in a row. The Good Friday Agreement celebration, hopefully the return to Stormont, if they can get this Windsor Accord over the line. And it would be pretty nice to have the presidential seal of approval on top of all of that. Very nice. No show like a Joe show. Finally, for this collection of newsings, Ryan got his hands on the trailer for the final season of Succession. I'm not mad for playing trailers on the programme, but just there's so many quotes here that are so good that I'm very excited. So I'll keep this quick. He's on the floor, Tom. Explain me what he's doing. He's moseying, terrifyingly moseying. It's like if Santa Claus was a hitman. for this uh, succession succession season four and, and the final go and that's landing around the um, end of March so it's, it's only a matter of time Indeed and it is The wait for the return of succession gets shorter with each passing day but the wait for the end of today's newsings is over You're welcome Ukrainian refugees looking for work in Ireland are facing a problem. It's not a lack of jobs, it's a lack of childcare. 
as Brian O'Connell outlined to Derville MacDonald, sitting in for Claire Byrne, this morning. There are barriers to work, including the language barrier. Uh, experience and hospitality perhaps not as prevalent uh, as it would be here in Ireland. But one of the main issues, as you said, is childcare. Now, I'll bring you two direct experiences. First up is Marina. She's worked since she arrived here, but is limited in how much work she can do because of those childcare concerns. Now, she told me about her experiences. I'm here since March. Started working uh, in April, I think. First, my job was uh, translating. I was doing translation when I moved to Tipperary, so I'm not able to do translations anymore. Here, I am with my son, who is 12, with my sister and with my nephew. So we are here, like small family. And tell me then about childcare. It's it's a problem for many parents. For yourselves, your single parent families, because yeah. of the war. Yeah, mainly here in Ireland, mainly women with kids came. So my son is 12 years old. My nephew is three and a half. My sister and myself, we both working. But it's very difficult because mostly jobs offer a full-time job. We are unable to do full-time. We can do only part-time. Not all Ukrainians have good English. Not all Ukrainians have cars or other transportations. Were you offered childcare options by anyone? Childcare options? No, no. But as we, we are staying with uh, my sister, so we mind each other kids. And because you have your sister here, that allows both of you to work. If you didn't have yeah. that, you think it would be very difficult. Yeah, it would be possible. That is all. Because uh, if you do not have English, uh, quite often employee offers only cleaning or like kitchen stuff, hard job. What are you going to do for the summer months when children are not in school? You know, I will continue working, of course. I, I mean, my son, he will co- continue soccer. He Maybe he will go some camp or uh, or other, some ent- entertainment, I, I'm thinking. I will continue my, my job, of course. And Brian, just listening uh, to Marina there, so, so ma- include many of the Ukrainians I've met, they're so eager um, to work. For Marina, she was, because she had some family here, mm-hmm. it had enabled her to work. They're working together. Others uh, you've met, though, aren't quite as, as fortunate. Yes, I met a Ukrainian uh, woman, Yana, yesterday in Cork City Centre. She had her CVs actually in her hand. She's been trying to secure work for the last few months. Now, in a previous life, when she was living in uh, Kiev, she owned an internet cafe. Uh, she's here with her children. She's living in a hostel for now. So a real struggle to try and find any kind of work that she could take up, given the lack of childcare supports available to her. This is some of what she told me yesterday. I have been in Ireland for 10 months, more than 10 months. How many children have you? Three children, six, nine and uh, 12. Is the problem if you work every day, who will mind your children? Yeah, it's a very big problem because I can leave my children alone at home. And has anybody offered you childcare? No. You're living in a hostel at the yeah. moment, so what's the accommodation like? For me, it's, it's good. You have your own room? Yeah. And you would like to work at the moment? Yes. You, you have your CVs in yes, your hands? Yes, yeah. <laughs> and then after this conversation, I'm going to uh, send my uh, CV. To cafes, you were telling me? Mm, cafe, cafe uh, shop. So if you get work, it has to be the morning time. Yeah, morning time, yeah. but uh, I think I can uh, ask, uh, ask some people from our hostel to help me. In the summertime, there's no school. That's a problem if you get a job. Mm, yes, it was a very big problem for summer. I found uh, some camps for my children. Uh, some employers uh, said to me that if I have three children, I can stay with my children and don't work. 
Gosh, Brian, that's uh, worrying at the end there that some employers are telling Yana that uh, they are aware she may not have childcare. Yes, and many women I I met say they're finding it hard to actually even get interviews because of this, even in hotels or bars where they would be actively looking for staff. Uh, I also met with Kate Duran. She's someone we've had on the show previously, Dervis. She's been helping to lead a community response, uh, assisting people find work, full and part-time work, and she's been liaising with accommodation providers. So she has become acutely aware over the past year what the barriers to employment have been. When we first met them, it was a temporary thing. You know, we thought we'd, they'd be here for a few weeks and they'd be going home. And of course, it's such a different situation now. You're looking at long term. And tell me then about the barriers to accessing work, Kate, because I know a lot of people had approached you about looking for employment. There's huge difficulties. I mean, I suppose you start with the language barrier. Then you've got security of tenure. The, the fact that qualifications don't translate so there's a lady we know a lovely lady and she's a microbiologist just skilled that I'm sure we could use in our hospitals here and she's now working in a restaurant she was working as a cleaner and they're great jobs but she's got a skill that we need Childcare is a nightmare. One, we don't have enough childcare, though that's certainly not improved. Every Ukrainian woman I have met, and I have met thousands in the last year, is a single mother. They're not only single mothers, but they're single mothers without probably sisters or neighbours or mothers or grandmothers or a community around them. And you also don't have a car, so you're trying to get a job. So you've got to be at your job for nine o'clock in the morning, so you've got to get your little one to the creche or to the school. So... How do you do that if you're in a remote setting? So even if there was childcare provided, it needs to be very close? It needs to be close. It needs to be tailored. You need to get over the language barrier, even though people are so adaptable, children far more so than adults. So if the schools are shut and we have no summer programme, then that's it. Mm. That's it, you know, those jobs are gone. And by the time they want to pick them up again in September, they'll have been replaced by somebody else. There's no silver bullet, I'd imagine. I don't know how you solve this. And it's not even throwing money at it. You need trained professionals, you need premises, you need a whole raft of supports. We never thought we'd be having this conversation a year later. Like, there's no sign of this situation, this invasion, ending anytime soon. Brian Kitt uh, speaking there about the the sheer raft of supports that are required. And when you think of, you know, the original and the ongoing demands of housing, health, education, language. But now, I suppose, as, as the as the crisis prolongs, uh, childcare and other issues. You've been in touch with uh, the Department of Children, Equality, Disability, Integration and Youth. Can they offer any additional supports um, for these mostly women trying to access childcare in order to support themselves and their families? Yes, uh, as you said there, we're probably looking at a more longer term type of support now, aren't we, where people are establishing their lives here. So um, the department had told me there were significant efforts into securing places and matching children to ECCE places across the country. So early learning and care sector had risen to the challenge, they said, and to try and make places available wherever possible. Uh, Also, the department made changes to uh, key legislation supporting the National Child Care Scheme that was back in July last year. So that would ensure Ukrainian children could access potentially the very substantial subsidies under that scheme up to about 230 euro per week depending on the age Um, so that's available in the summer as well as uh, during uh, term time then there are uh, stay and play sessions for parents and toddlers they're offered in accommodation centres as well and then they tell me just picking up on on the point that Kate Durant was was making there around training people uh, the department tells me actually advice um, has been given on childminding and a number of Ukrainian women are in the process now of becoming childminders so as you can see they're obviously looking at 
longer term supports now to be put in place. Brian O'Connell reporting on this morning's Today with Derville MacDonald on the issue of childcare shortages for Ukrainian refugees. The ABBA Voyage show in London opened last May and it's proven to be, well, pretty darn successful. It's a virtual concert with, yes, avatars of the band performing a full set list at a purpose-built arena. And now there are plans to take the show on tour. Ray Darcy spoke this afternoon to Ingmarie Harlan, the curator and creative director of the ABBA Museum. As I was saying, over a million tickets have been bought by fans who have flocked to see ABBA Voyage since it began in London last May. Uh, it's a virtual concert. You probably know about it by now. It sees hologram-style uh, avatars of the pop band performing a full set list in a purpose-built arena. And the news today is that we could be seeing it go global. Uh, Variety magazine are reporting that while on a company earnings call, Universal Music Group chairman Lucianne Grange said, and this is a quote, plans are now in development to take Ava Voyage around the world. End of quote. Ingmarie Halling is the curator and creative director of the ABBA Museum. Uh, we spoke with Ingmarie before and we liked her, so we said we'd talk to her again. Anytime ABBA's mentioned, Ingmarie, you're going to get a call from us. How are you? Hi, I'm fine. Great. A little chilly here in the north. Yes. Good. Have you ever frozen your hair? Uh, no. No, no. We, I was just but looking. I've had scones, though. You've had scones, right? What, what way do you... I don't like them. You don't, don't like, like them. them? Okay, right. We'll move on then. We'll move on. Okay. Yeah. Will you remind people about your, your relationship with the band, both professional and personal? Yeah. Professional-wise, uh, I started working with them in the 70s, uh, doing the first uh, transatlantic tour to Australia in 77. And uh, we became friends and uh, also colleagues in some way because I'm working as the curator and creative director at Aberdeen Museum in Stockholm. Mm. Uh, which is supposed to be a great visit if anybody's ever up there in Stockholm. Um, you spoke to us after uh, ABBA Voyage uh, premiered in London and you were full of praise for it. Have you been back since? Yes, I've been back once and uh, <clears throat> I'm going next week as well because we're doing an ABBA Voyage exhibition at the museum, of course. Of course, yes, yes. But I need to look at it out of a, another perspective than I had at that time as a plain visitor. Yeah, yeah. And mm. and, and you're most friendly with one of the girls. Which one? Well, I'm, I'm friends with both, but uh, I, I see Frida quite often, or as often as it's, as it's possible since she's not living in Sweden. So. Yeah. Uh, we get to find the time whenever. And what has the reaction been from the band uh, after the success of ABBA Voyage? Well, uh, since I'm not really a spokesperson no, for course, them. No, of course, of course. And I know, I know, I know, but, I know. But, but uh, definitely uh, what they have told me, they are very happy and uh, humble, I would say. Yeah. You, I mean, you don't, there is no, there is no... Um, proof in in advance of how this should uh, turn around yes. but it has been so good and of course they are humble and happy for that yeah, no because we we spoke to I, I think it's benny he has horses in ireland uh, and we spoke to yeah, him of yes yeah we spoke to him before <laughs> the, you know i think two years before this came on board and they were they were in the process of doing it at that stage and he had, yeah. he had said that you know the plan was to have it ready in a year uh, but 
in reading between the lines, they weren't happy with it at that stage. So that more work had to be done. So they're perfectionists, as you would expect from a band who produced the music they've produced over the years. Definitely. Yes. And uh, um, that that it's the same with the when back in the day when they were doing music, it took time. Mm. Uh, that's they built their own studio so they could sort of have as much time as they needed. So this is the same, 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 but different. Yes, and they're happiest, I believe, in the studio. And and when you went on tour with them, they were sort of like fish out of water a bit. <laughs> yeah, um, no, not really. I mean, as a musician, if you're a true musician or a singer, uh, you adore the, the you know, connection with the yes, audience. Yes, okay, yeah, yeah. So as soon as they were on stage, they were happy. It, it was the thing between aha yes the, the truth yes 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 yeah Which, yeah yeah so yeah 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 <laughs> all of all of that yes so if they could if they could be if they could be teleported to the stage in australia or america or wherever that would have been great but it's that that, that yeah, would have been great that would have been great well that that's only around the corner uh, and then they'd, yeah. be, they'd be able to time travel as well and go back and do con- anyway. okay yeah. so so the rumors are from variety <laughs> magazine that ABBA voyage is going on tour i believe you've been talking to ben and what, what, what? And I know you're not a spokesperson, but what, yeah. what was he saying? Oh, he just uh, on a side note when we're talking about something else, he, he said that. Uh, oh yeah, I told him that we were going with the ABBA Museum Choir to Australia. I just came back from there. Right. And um, I told him about that, and he said, "Oh, you know, we are looking for maybe having um, ABBA Voyage at other places." But uh, I, I think that we know that when we know it, because it's such a tricky t- thing to do this technically. Yes. It's not else that, that I think is in the... Uh, no, you don't uh, just put it in the back of a truck. <laughs> <laughs> well, that would be easy. Ship <laughs> yeah. it over. <laughs> no, it's, it's sort of a, a techie uh, yes. issue yeah. here, uh, together with the kind of arena you know the arena at Pudding Mill Lane is specially built for this mm. and I don't know whether they think uh, they would take the arena with them or if they will buy a new one or build a new one that I don't know yeah uh, because I know that when when time is right we will know uh, but like the demand they've sold one million tickets already uh, again no surprise because They've they've sold nearly four hundred million albums. Uh, they've had mm. seventeen number one hits, um, mm. and even now we, we live in a different world. They have sixteen million weekly global streams, so they're still much, very much part mm. of people's lives. So uh, there would be a demand if they went if they brought this elsewhere. Yeah, it it, it, it'd probably be like Disney, won't it? It'll be like London will stay there. They won't up up and take London to uh, Las Vegas, for example, to just build it all again in Las Vegas. That's probably the way to do it. Well, if I if I got my information correct, which I'm not sure when I talk to you, uh, th- that area where Pudding Mill Lane is, is, uh, is supposed to be something else there in, in some... It years. is, yes. It, they, yeah. they only have it for a limited time, yes. That's, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I probably didn't expect it to be uh, this popular. Um, but anyway, um, uh, Ingmarie, the next time Abba's mentioned in the news, we will be calling you. Stay by your phone. <laughs> <laughs> I will definitely stay, but I will wait every day. Yes, OK. Day. That's Ingmarie Harling, curator and creative director of the Abba Museum, talking to Ray Darcy this afternoon. Exciting times for Abba fans are on the horizon, it seems. 
English comedian John Bishop is coming to Ireland with Ian McKellen in the super panto Mother Goose. But, he told Ryan Turberley this morning, he's treating it less as a stop on a tour and more as a sort of a homecoming. I just did a, a show recently um, on ITV called uh, DNA Stories, where you look into your DNA, your family history. And, uh, and I did it with uh, Hugh Bonneville. And we both we both found out that we've got a family connection with Dublin, and that our great great grandfathers knew each other, uh, which is uh, a nice thing to know. And I also found out that I'm sixty five percent Irish in my DNA. <laughs> okay, so, I mean, the 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 story was you. So it turns out that Hugh Bonneville's ancestor John Freeman worked in a family bakery four doors down from your ancestor Andrew Keegan's music shop. That is outstanding. Exactly. It's it's staggering. It was such a revelation, but then the then the biggest revelation is the fact that I've got I've got seven. I'm only seven percent English. It's <laughs> probably why I always feel happy when I'm in, when I'm either in Liverpool or where I am now or in Dublin. Yeah, I mean, when you think of Hugh, I've had the pleasure of chatting with Hugh a few times, and and he's he has that quintessential Englishness to him. And yet, when you sit down, if you're you know sit down and have a have a, have a, have a beer with him. You can see the Irish devilment in him. And now that he's done that programme oh. with you guys, the pair of you, the two characters marching down Capel Street uh, and, and visiting your ancestors' home with the ghosts of the past swirling around you both, I wouldn't have made you out as likely bedfellows uh, ancestor-wise, but there you are. Ah, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, you, we're actually good friends as well. Good. Which is an odd combination. Uh, but yeah, he is quintessentially English. Although he's got an Irish passport, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which I, I just felt was completely unfair, seeing as I've got all the DNA. Well, that's true, and you know, funny enough, Steve Coogan picked up a passport in the last few days. Um, I, 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 would you be tempted? Would I be tempted? I, one hundred percent. If there's anyone listening to this who can help me get an Irish passport, God, and get, listen, Ryan, you've seen. What goes on in England? Yeah. Where would you rather live? <laughs> well, you're sixty percent of the way there, John. Like, so get busy, mm. get busy. Apply. How did you? How did, just briefly on Hugh? How did you guys meet up or get to know each other? Oh, uh, he was actually a volunteer at the COVID vaccination centre where I went for my vaccine. Mm. Uh, we just moved to the area, and I didn't know anyone. And then COVID happened, and uh, he was a volunteer when I was queuing up. And he had the face mask on. He said, Dave, John, it's me, Hugh. And then pulled the mask down. <laughs> and I said, Hugh, you are literally the only person I know here. So you are my friend now, whether you want to be or not. <laughs> so I, I basically stalked him. <laughs> OK. Well, he's a good stalky, I'm sure. And uh, But your mates now. And gosh, that, that makes it all the more extraordinary that you end up having these ancestors living up the road from each other. Oh, yeah. Incredible. Incredible. Uh I want to ask you a few things before we talk all things Panto and uh, one of them is that obviously you've got so many strings to your bow uh, but the chat show bit is of interest to me as somebody does something similar if not the same over here. Uh, I get the sense that it's something you always wanted to do. I get the sense that you're loving it but my question is why did you want to do it and and how's it going? Uh, Well, you know what it's like, Ryan, when you're doing it. It's, It's... There's a, you know, the world doesn't need another chat show. There's loads of brilliant chat show hosts about, and, and there's loads of chat shows. Um, but I wanted to do it from my point of view because I, I, I'm a bit like you. I like people. I like meeting people. 
Um, but I wanted to do it in a more relaxed setting. I didn't want to do it where everyone was coming on. And you know what it's like. The yeah. PR agency says, well, you can ask them this, but you can't ask them that. And they don't want to comment on that. I wanted it to be a bit more of a, a chat, um, which is why we tried to make it a little bit based around the events of the week and make it slightly topical about the news. But I just like it. I just like to be paid to basically have a chat with someone. It's just great, isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, you've been cheating a living for years, so I, I just want to join it. It's it, 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 it's legitimate crime. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, exactly. So I, I I like doing it. I definitely, definitely like doing it. If there's a chance to do more, I'll obviously build it. It's it's that thing that you have, uh, and I think it's it's essential doing a job like like this or like that is uh, curiosity. If you don't have it, uh, or yeah. if, you, if you if you don't have the passion, you're it, it's over. But if you have it, um, everyone who comes through the door is, uh, and it doesn't matter necessarily how much they've achieved, as it were, but just just an interesting person is all you want sitting in front of you. Exactly, and you again, you'll know from the experience yourself is that you you want to learn from them, and the best. The best, I suppose, tip that anyone's ever said to me as an interviewer is to remember you're the interviewer, you're not the interviewee, so shut up. Mm. Let people talk mm. and listen listen to what they say. And you, you've done it, uh, I've done it, where you get an interview by people and they're literally reading the next question as you're answering the first question. I think you're not even listening to what I'm saying. Or they're busy telling um, you about their own story, at which point you're going, well... Yeah. Just... It's a balance. It's a balance because also, you know, uh, people are turning on the television to be entertained. And so you, you need to recognise that if, you know, your name's above the door, you're part of the reason that they've turned on. So, you, it, but I, I just, I like, it's an art form doing a chat show. And for people like yourself who are good at it, it takes a practice to get there so you know we've done a couple of series of this and i'd like to do do more you've got to put the time in mm. would you would you ever could do it uh do it live would you could you could you hack that that's what oh, i'd love to that's what we do I'd every friday to. and it's 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 uh there's a there's a bungee jump for you i can tell you oh i know well i've been there haven't i you know you have you know <laughs> what it's like i've seen the i've seen the whites of your eyes <laughs> You've seen the, the sweat in my palms, <laughs> but it's 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 great. You've enjoyed talking to. I know I noticed you had Kirsty Young on on the show. I mean, there's somebody who's met a whole heap of people too. And uh, who who's jumped out at you that you've been surprised by or or fascinated by? There's been quite a quite a few sorts of surprises. Shania Twain. Oh yeah, was you know a name that you think oh you know you, big name big star and I thought oh, she's going to be one of those um, you know North American stars that's going to come with a, an entourage and and when she arrived it was obviously a, a buzz in the building but oh my god what a down to earth woman she was and her husband uh, Fred and we, we literally just stayed after the show. And, you know, staying, having a glass of wine, mm. talking to it sort of for hours. And that was a complete surprise because I wasn't expecting that that level of down to earthness with her. She was ace. And for me as well, it was interesting because I'm doing this show with Ian McKellen. Having Ian on as a guest was interesting. Yes. You know, when, you, when you've done that stuff where you're working with somebody in one field and then the next field, you're asking them questions that you probably would never ask them mm. away. 
John Bishop, soon to be seen alongside Ian McKellen in Mother Goose, talking to Ryan Tuberty this morning. That empty shelf that you're staring at in the supermarket where the tomatoes and peppers ought to be, well, that's down to climate change affecting Spanish vegetable growers. So Chef Brian McDermott joined Dervil McDonald in studio to give us some homegrown alternatives to the elusive Spanish veg. I think they've done us a favour because Spain are going to get us refocusing on number one, what's in storage, the likes of our onions, our garlics and our potatoes that are there all year round. Now we're going to move towards the likes of kale. You know, we've got leeks that's going to be in season, cauliflower, things like that that we normally look at and think, God, that's really mushy or it's full of cheese sauce or I'm not going to buy a whole one. So let's try and excite them today and let's bring those kind of typical good Irish root vegetables to life. So see the opportunity uh, in the crisis. Uh, these are quite, we kind of forget, they are quite versatile vegetables. I think so. I think any vegetable is versatile. I think normally we relate a vegetable to being force fed it when we were kids or, you know, we got too much of it at some stage and that creates a bad experience. But nowadays we think differently, you know, things simple as broccoli and just thinking to ourselves, what else could we do with it? Not just boil it and think it's at the side of our plate or our child's plate and it's the last so what thing. what do you do with it? Well, we char it. So what do you mean by char? And it's literally take a frying pan out, turn it on the heat dry, add to it a drizzle of local Irish rapeseed oil. Sometimes I'll put in toasted sesame seed oil. Cut those broccoli into florets. Now, florets are the natural little flowers at the top, but keep some of the stem on because it creates a lovely flat kind of bottom on it as you cut it. And just place it down in the sizzling oil, but not enough that you're going to kind of hear this, just a nice little sound going on. Season it with a bit of salt and pepper. Leave it alone. That's the secret here. Leave it alone until you almost hear it crisping underneath. Turn it up right upside down again, repeat it and by the stage you repeat it on the second side, that broccoli will be cooked. It won't be mushy and overcooked nor will it be that word al dente. It'll have a still <laughs> nice bite to it Derville, and it'll be beautiful. My, my then, efforts at charred broccoli uh, would, be, would put shame to the word al dente. It, it's actually quite, quite a fine thing to try and to, to get. You, you brush your broccoli with a little bit of a uh, Butter as well. Yeah, you have to get butter in there. So when the broccoli's nearly cooked, I'll add in a, a knob of butter. And sometimes as well, you know, you, you can look at different things like, you know, toasted sesame seed going in there, a little bit of soya sauce and whack up the heat when you turn in the soya sauce. Stir fry it a little bit at the end. And what will happen is the soya sauce will get absorbed into the broccoli. It'll evaporate off whatever moisture's left. Then you know you're ready to serve it into a side dish, some toasted sesame seeds over the top of it. You'll never go back to mushy broccoli when yeah. you do this. And if you've got some leftover, like feta cheese the next day of with course, it, a salad, bit of chicken yeah. or sun-dried tomato, and your alternative really lunch is ready for you the next day. Um, the broccoli has a close cousin, which is much maligned and can sound hard, hard to drum up the love uh, for cauliflower but if we are trying to reimagine and repurpose these veg what can we do with cauliflower? Yeah cauliflower again I think cauliflower because it looks so big as a head you kind of think to yourself I'll never use all of that and guess what we never do we end up getting half of it and throwing half of it out later so I think you got to again how do you build it into a lunch and a dinner take the florets again now keep the stems they make a fantastic soup or a puree mm. for the likes of chicken or any white meat just by sweating in some butter onion and a little bit of garlic cream and cheese there's your puree done with the stalks 
back to the floret. Again, you can do this in a tray or a pan. Put them into a bowl, a little bit of rapeseed oil, toss them around, season them. Let's say you went for a medium curry powder and about two tablespoons. Because you see that now as a main dish or a side dish in many restaurants. It's so trendy. But, you know, it's just a case of like wondering how do they do it and bring it back to the home. And this is really how they do it. That's the bit that I wonder. Yeah, and that's where we all struggle. Because we're thinking, you know, that's the reason we eat out. We think we're getting something that's elevated. But simple things. It's one of the you kind of have to use on the day. Like you don't don't freeze cauliflower. It doesn't do itself any justice by freezing it. You know, so the florets to me has to be fresh and you've got them in that bowl. You've added in your medium curry powder. Why do I go medium and not really spicy? Because again, two girls at home, it depends who you're, who, mm-hmm. who's your audience, who you're cooking for, what do they love as a spice level. Toss it round in that, back onto the tray or back onto the pan. And if it's a pan, you're just turning it up medium to high heat. Stay with it, toss it, mm-hmm. enjoy it, listen to the sounds, get the smells and the sensory going. And all of a sudden, after about four to five minutes, you're going to have these crisp, caramelised little bits of cauliflower with an abundance of spiced flavour going on in there. And then you can add a bit of grated parmesan to that. They can go into salads. They can go into wraps almost where you would put croutons in. You know, it gives a little bit of diversity there. And of course, before we would have really, really felt kind of the seasonal impact. But with food so mass produced and on our shelves, you know, we've sort of forgotten, well, what is in season or what's not in season. So how do we kind of retrain the brain to identify, okay, what's in season and what can I be using now? Yeah, we've forgotten for a number of reasons because we've seen this infusion of food that's readily available absolutely everywhere. So we now go, what is in season? And we've discussed today what's in season. To me, it's about the Irish soil, the root vegetable, that element of it. But a couple of little things that you can do is there's plenty of calendars out there from some of the state bodies. You know, print one off or download it. That's a great way. But even just pick to yourself and say, could I pick out two to three vegetables that are in season right now? Stick it on a post-it, put it on your fridge and say to yourself, what do I know about them? Like, do I just consider cauliflower, mushy, you know, morning sauce? No, we've told you something different. Educate yourself about three vegetables over the next month. The diversity, how you cook them, how else you could add different textures to them. By this time next year, you'll have about 20 new ingredients. You'll know the seasons and you'll know how to cook them a little bit differently as well. Yeah. So um, if you were to take on your own challenge here, what, um, like leeks is one of them. So what, you know, way I was thinking of that Bridget Jones diary when she was cooking the leeks and the, <laughs> the blue piece of twine. Um, but what way would you reconsider cooking leeks? Yeah, OK, it's a couple of different things. What does revival look like? Yeah, you're right. And, you know, leeks again, you know, being Welsh, God forbid, like yeah. that we would claim them. Um, but we we will say they're Celtic more than anything else. Vegetables. Yeah. And what I what I remember about leeks is, you know, they come in rings in a soup mix. I remember my mum sending me to the shop and the soup mix was leeks, parsley, carrots and, and a mix that you just threw into the pot and boiled the living daylights out of to make a broth or a soup. But when you see them in rings, I get concerned. I learned that as I became a chef because the best way really to prepare a leek is to split it down the middle, wash it under cold water. If you ever push those rings out oh there's grittiness in there and then if you try and do what I'm about to tell you in terms of braising them or otherwise you get the little bit of grit in there so slice them down the middle run them under cold water don't chop and then wash after you've chopped because you'll flush out a lot of the flavour and really you've wasted it at that point so what I like to do with them is even a stuffed leek but let's talk about a braised leek for a second what is braising it's where there's half liquor in there and really I'm just using the likes of a stock it can be a vegetable if you want to go all vegetable and nice chicken stock will add an element to this season it really well they take on a good bit of pinch of sea salt nice fresh ground cracked black or white pepper onto it the stock in cover tin foil little bit of butter if you want into the oven and just braise them when they feel nice and soft maybe put a nice crumb of a mix of cheese herbs and breadcrumb onto them are they a side are they a meal they could be with a roast chicken they could be absolutely everything chef brian mcdermott 
giving us the hard sell on leaks on this morning's Today with Derville MacDonald. On a special live line this afternoon, Joe Duffy spoke to musician Gilbert O'Sullivan about his long career. Where do, where do you start with, with your incredible career ongoing? And someone said to me yesterday, it's just brilliant to see Gilbert's reputation come round to meet him again. And um, you started off absolutely, you, you landed on the scene back in the 70s, you exploded onto the scene, the soundtrack to so many people's lives, and you're still writing. And I know you're not on this programme, you didn't ask to come on the programme to promote a, a an album, which and your last album was Driven, and... Um, you're you're driven, but you're not a driver. But you are a very driven person, aren't you, Gilbert? Yeah, I think. Well, that's what's kept me going. That's what's kept me going through all the years, maintaining the enthusiasm and the love I have for the craft of songwriting. So it's driven in that sense, competing with contemporary artists. I'm, mm-hmm. you know, I want to compete and find my place in the business still strong. So, so that you know, so if you have that driven mentality, it's actually very helpful. And what does it mean? What does it mean, Gilbert, in your daily routine being so driven? Well, there are two daily routines. If I'm writing, uh, it's it's uh, it's nine to five. Wow. uh, With a lunch break, and then uh, four weeks a month, if necessary, to come up with melodies and potentially lyrics. But I'm not writing at the moment, having just released the album last year. Okay. So therefore, it's just normal family life. Get up early. My daughter's here with her son. Uh, Benny Ray oh, yeah. and uh, and my wife is here. We just have it very normal. I go for walks in the afternoon. It, it's just very normal, Joe. And you live in Jersey. I yeah, yeah, that. absolutely. Why, Good place why, to raise children. Is it okay? Why, why Jersey or why not Jersey? Why Jersey? <clears throat> well, there's two reasons. One one was one was financial. Okay. Um, the other one was that with our girls uh, at just the starting school age. We felt it was a good place to, to raise them. Okay. Uh, a very healthy environment. And uh, it's only half an hour by plane to London. So you can feel you're part of the UK, even though uh, Jersey is, a, is an individual island. And what is, what is Raymond like? What is Gilbert like on Jersey? Do you, do you go to the shops? Do you go to the church? Do you go to the cinema? Do you, are you seeing much around Jersey? The fella said. No, no, I'm okay. not because I keep a very, I, I keep a low profile. I mean, okay. I'm only Gilbert O'Sullivan. I'm only Gilbert O'Sullivan when I leave Jersey. Okay. I'm in Jersey, okay. I, I just get on with a. It's a yeah. quiet, it's a quiet life here. And you like that? Yeah, well, it suits me because it's good for me. It's just normal. I mean, there's no frustration. I don't have to worry about concerts in Jersey. Worry about. Uh, uh, opening up a fate, or you know, I, I don't. Yeah. I just keep that low profile, which people respect, and um, so that you know, so that's fine. It suits me, particularly because of the craft that I do. Yeah. When, you know, being a songwriter, I need that good environment. So I have a good family environment, and I have this this determination uh, to succeed with my songs. And you have a reflective environment, Gilbert. Like, do you? I've seen images of your house and and the the landscape behind it seems very calm, very tranquil. That's important Mm. to you. Yeah, because, you know, a bit bit of land helps me, gives me a distance to walk every day. Okay, okay. And do you, I'm like, when you, I know Waterford, you you only live there for, uh, is that that the line? Uh, You're still there, Gilbert, yeah? Tracks. Yeah, you are, yeah. With a good live room attached, attached to the property. Yeah, I'm still here. Yeah. 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 Oh, what were you saying so, there? You have so, a you have a, no, a, a music a, room. 
I have a no, I have a we have a um, purpose-built studio, which is a forty-eight okay. track SSL desk with a live room and stuff. We recorded the last album, not the current album. The album before this was recorded there, so it's okay. good to have that on the grounds uh, to be used. I don't write there though; I just write upstairs. Okay, let's bring let's bring in some people who want to talk to you. Uh, Siobhan Cooper, Siobhan, good afternoon. Okay, let's hope the line stays. Siobhan, good afternoon. Hello, Joe. What do you want to say to Gilbert O'Sullivan? Oh, first of all, I'm delighted to get the opportunity to talk to you. Hi, Gilbert. And um, I couldn't believe when Joe said the other day that it was 50 years since Claire was was a hit. And, um, oh, I was only a teenager at the time. I can't believe I'm saying that. It's so long ago. And um, at the time, I had um, my boyfriend, I think I was about 14, and we went to the concert in the Carlton. Mm-hmm. At the time, was in Dublin. Big concert, and, yeah. Um, oh, a long time ago. And just and would Siobhan remind people because uh, younger people, especially though, Gilbert is still he's still writing brilliant songs and putting out really good albums and doing fantastic concerts. I was at the one last year here in the National Concert Hall. It was brilliant. He brought the house down again with the great Bill Shanley uh, um, uh, accompanying Gilbert as he does now. But remind people back in the 70s, like when Gilbert came to Ireland, it was Beatlemania. It was absolutely mental. I mean, the Carlton was only a cinema. We didn't have the venues that we have nowadays, you know, so it wouldn't be hard to sell the tickets. But I was at the concert where Gilbert went under the piano. I don't know whether he collapsed. I'm dying to know, did he just slip off the stool? Because there was pandemonium in the Carlton. And it was at the Carlton uh, with my friend, because at the time I had fallen out with my boyfriend who had bought the tickets, so I kept them and brought my friend. But I got back with my boyfriend and we're now 48 years married and I still sing to Gilbert all the time. All the time. I absolutely think he's just amazing. And I'm delighted to see that he's still going strong and coming back. Gilbert, do you remember that concert in the Carlton? Do you remember being under the piano? And did you, as Siobhan wants to know, were you exhausted or did you collapse? Or was that part of the act? I think it was on top of the piano, not under oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Unless that was the time when I, I, I did, yeah, I did... Uh, Kind of fainting thing uh, during that really hectic period when we were over here in '72, I think 1972. There was a I had a bad night where I just I kind of got uh, I think it was I just fell over. Yeah. And you were you were <laughs> only... so yeah I, I vaguely remember that. It's not something I necessarily <laughs> want to remember. And- Gilbert O'Sullivan reliving the memories, good and bad, with Joe Duffy on this afternoon's Live Line. Finally, for this edition of Playback Daily, a dip into this week's gathering on Today with Derville MacDonald, featuring Josepha Madigan, Minister of State in the Department of Education and Fine Gael TD, Michael Fitzmaurice, Independent TD for Roscommon Galway, Alison O'Connor, political commentator and columnist, and Dermot O'Leary, General Secretary of the NBRU. Derville started by asking Josepha Madigan about the cost of living crisis. On Wednesday, the Dáil heard about a 100-year-old woman who got an electricity bill for €957 for a two-month period. Another elderly person had a bill of more than €1,600. And, you know, we've had listeners texting into the show about bills, domestic bills, with eye-watering figures. Um, They're not defensible, are they? 
Um, no, I mean, I, I think, you know, the government, first of all, is acutely aware, obviously, of the, the cost of living crisis for families um, and indeed for businesses. Um, and that's why when you look back to the budget, we had an 11 billion euro budget package, 4.4 billion of that was, was one off measures to help with the cost of living. We've also implemented 1.2 billion uh, package uh, in February. Um, even this month, there's a 200 euro credit. That's the third one that's going to be paid. A fourth one hasn't been ruled out. And we have a number of different measures there. Everything from, you know, reducing childcare costs 25%. We have another 80,000 people availing of the fuel allowance to help, you know, low income families. There's a working fa- family payment. I think there's about 470 million in terms of social welfare payments. So we're really doing everything we can to try to assist uh, people with, 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 the t- with this difficulty. And just on that, on, uh, on businesses, obviously Electric Ireland and I during the week that they were reducing their prices for businesses but not for households. Do you think that that is fair? And I think no. I, I think actually that we need to extend it to, to customers, um, to, you know, to households. Um, I, I know Electric Ireland to give, did give a 50 euro winter credit, um, but that to me isn't sufficient. And I know that the Taoiseach has called now that wholesale prices have been reduced. They did go up significant, significantly As in the past, but they have now come down. Um, and there's no reason why that shouldn't be uh, passed on to, to consumers, um, not just businesses. I, I mean, I do welcome the fact that there is a reduction for businesses, but we also have to help consumers. When you, when you talk so, about you know, and I th- sorry to interrupt, mm. but I think uh, I, I heard um, Michael McGrath, Minister for Finance, uh, uh, this morning on Morning Ireland, you know, and and he was saying that you know it shouldn't be the taxpayer that has to bear the brunt it's, it's of all of that this. It is you know, so. government. But just on that, the fourth, uh, the prospect of a fourth two hundred euro electricity credit has. You're saying it has not been ruled out. Are you saying? Um, that it will happen. Well, obviously, it's not a decision mm-hmm. for me to make, um, but it has been mooted that you know everything is under consideration, um, and I think that will continue. You know, even the VAT rate has been retained. You know, the nine mm-hmm. percent VAT rate. You know, on excise, on petrol, on diesel, well, up until October. Look, the question Dermot. I was asked uh, if there was to start was about the hundred-year-old woman uh, and the other person was sixteen hundred euro bill. We all know, and we've heard infinitum at this stage about the interventions. Some of them, obviously, lots of them are more than welcome. But when you see some of the profits of of, of some of the multinationals on, on the pitch here in terms of uh, the charges. Centrica, Centrica, the British multinational, bought Borgash uh, in 2014 for 1.1 billion. They made profits last year of 3.71 billion. In, in, in 2022 that's that's immoral yeah. so uh, what are you suggesting is, it, is, it, is it a cap I, 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 what are you suggesting the, the interventions made the interventions made by the government I think total around 4 billion if, I, if my figures are right and that 4 billion effectively is transferred into private business who are making exorbitant profits now I don't often agree with Brenda Power uh, and sometimes I do but as we uh, heard on, this on morning the, the, mail, the, go, the, the government the is mail, benefiting from uh, the inflation on, on crisis the mail, in terms on the of mail, that this, on the mail this morning Brenda Power talks about uh, and she, she likens it to the cyber attack uh, by uh, faceless Russians back uh, in the HSE a number of years ago she's, I think she's quite right that these people are making these urban profits on the back of what they say is a war and price increases and again when people read about uh, our business prices going down and domestic prices not going down a minister agreeing that they, they should come down action is what's needed what well, people Alison, Alison, Alison O'Connor sorry I just want to bring Alison so sorry just Alison O'Connor just on that then you know and I listened to Michael McGrath uh, this morning talking about you know the recognised pressure on households the recognised pressure on anyone and uh, all these things are being considered but is there a gap between the comprehension and taking action such as cap prices or windfall taxes that would actually, are they just hoping that there'd be enough sort of peer pressure or political pressure out there for the companies to act themselves? No, I mean, that is clearly the case. It's been talked about. It's like this axe that keeps swinging above the heads of the energy companies, but one wouldn't get the sense that the energy companies are too fearful at at this point. Um, But I suppose it's 
at least the government has that as a, as an option, albeit that they are reluctant to to interfere u- in markets, to interfere in markets, and to utilise that. Um, I think that uh, on the the wider point about the it was last night in prime time that the Taoiseach said that he would consider the possibility of another uh, energy instalment later later this year. And certainly, listening there was a, an elderly man in prime time this morning, and it was just such a vivid image. And he was it, shocked at the the uh, how by how much his bill had gone up, and an image of him sitting there with he, he had a blow heater, and it was a very viv- vivid image in in your head. And that how people like that, and the people that you mentioned, you know, really. Did desperately need help. But a concern of mine is that that there's this kind of, it's a strange term, reflexive enfeeblement on the part of the government that uh, I don't think the Taoiseach should have said last night that he may consider another instalment. I think it's setting up far too much of a level of expectation on the part of people the people who don't need it. I'm not talking about the man this morning. I'm talking about whole swathes of other people who have plenty of money and uh, who don't yeah. need that. But the yeah. government is responding not only to not only to public it. public opinion, but also to we'll say to Sinn Fein or whatever, and that there it, it hasn't been targeted enough. So if well, we Pascal had years Donahue of this, on this program yesterday, yeah. saying that that would be the next phase, yeah. there must be much much more targeted yeah. measures. But the, and that makes sense. And uh, Pascal Donahue regularly makes very good sense on those issues but then his boss goes on prime time and does something like he did sorry, last I, I, I want to bring sorry I want to that follows on then from quite rightly the years of covid when we got those we we got we got all the payments that that we did and that we should have gotten but the government is now creating uh, a sense whereby it always has to be that's Alison O'Connor, political commentator and columnist, part of Dervil MacDonald's gathering, which also included Josepha Madigan, Minister of State in the Department of Education and Fine Gael TD, Michael Fitzmaurice, Independent TD for Roscommon Galway, and Dermot O'Leary, General Secretary of the NBRU. And that's all I have for you on this edition of Playback Daily. The programme was compiled, written and edited by me, Neil O'Shiradon. Don't forget you can listen back to all the programmes featured on Playback Daily on the RTE radio player. And there'll be another episode of Playback Daily at the same time tomorrow. Probably. Until the next time, thank you for listening and good luck.